like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. A couple things I'll mention while you're turning to that little book that you'll find uh, definitely towards the end of the Bible, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, we showed the picture of little Ava Rose this morning. My wife came home from WOW, the uh, women's event on Friday night, which I think has one more week. They meet again Friday at 7.30. Is that when WOW starts? Yes, okay. So they meet one more time. If you haven't been to WOW yet, you still can this Friday night at 7.30. But my wife came home and she said to me they played a, a trivia, a little bit of Grace Baptist Church trivia. And I found out I did not know this. Ava Rose is the seventh baby born this year to our church family. So that's a lot. One for each of the elders. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> and... Um, Second, I wanted to point. I want to mention to you. We're gonna. I'm gonna read Second Thessalonians two. I'm gonna read the first twelve verses. We're gonna focus on a portion of that. Uh, usually, there's a there's a note sheet in my bulletin. Some of you already have it out, and you're gonna follow along. We're gonna walk through the text, and I hope we're gonna do it in an orderly way. It, the way we're gonna walk through it, though, did not lend itself to easily easy outlining. So uh, we're gonna ramble. I'm not gonna ramble. We're gonna meander in an orderly way through the text. That's just a warning. But let's read it first, all right? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and, with de and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accord with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Today we're going to begin what I believe will be uh, three weeks or so uh, in these 12 verses. Uh, this is the heart of 2 Thessalonians 2, and the main focus is on the coming of the Antichrist, who is here called the man of lawlessness, the man doomed to destruction. We're going to talk about the rise and the rule of the Antichrist, and I promise you, I promise you, that it is just a coincidence that it is also time to vote for President of the United States. Um, I, it's just a coincidence uh, the inauguration of the coming of the Antichrist and the inauguration of Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump are not inextricably linked as far as I can tell from this passage. 
And, and yet, actually, there is a connection in this passage between uh, what's happening today and what you read about in the newspaper and what we see in this text. The connection is worth noting because it entails uh, the main purpose of this chapter. In verse 2, Paul tells, uh, asks the Thessalonian brothers and sisters not to be easily unsettled or alarmed. Are you unsettled or alarmed? A lot of people are. They're unsettled because they're afraid that Donald Trump doesn't have the temperament to be president, that, that some foreign leader is going to make fun of his hair or tell him he's not a really a billionaire and he's going to use Twitter to start a nuclear war. Some people are afraid of that. Some people are afraid that Hillary Clinton is going to nominate uh, Supreme Court justices that are going to redefine the Second Amendment or, or, or restrict the freedom of conscience. There's alarm and unsettled minds all over the place. And you can hear it in the rising rhetoric of how terrible it's going to be with uh, these uh, candidates. Are you unsettled and alarmed? Uh, The Thessalonians are tempted to be unsettled and alarmed, and the issue before them was about what was to come in the future. Here's a chapter. This is supposed to calm anxious minds, settle uh, worried hearts. And since that's so central, I just want to even begin by thinking about these concepts of being unsettled and alarmed. There is an attitude of heart and mind that can reside in the lives of God's people, and when it does, that mindset dishonors him. Uh, the word unsettled describes something unsettled, like uh, it, can, it can be translated shaking. It's used to describe an earthquake, or it's used to describe how the wind affects the waves on, on the water. A boat that's loosened from its moorings is unsettled. There's no secure anchorage. The uh, the ESV translation says, shaken in mind. And the text describes someone who is shaky. Their their temperament, not their temperament, their mindset, their sense of calm is as shaky as the ground in an earthquake zone. You know what this is like. Paul is describing here the sort of mind that the local news wants you to have every evening. You see them. They come up in those little 30-second ads uh, between... Uh, television shows. Someone will come on and say, the sun is shining now, but is a hurricane on its way? Tune in tonight and find out. And you think to yourself, hurricane? There's going to be a hurricane? Where? When? How? I better tune in. Or there, come on. A major outbreak of lice hits a local school. Did your your child bring home the little bug critters in in his or her backpack? Tune in tonight. We'll have the forecast too. Gravity is what keeps you attached to the ground, but some scientists say it might not last forever, so tune in tonight and we'll tell you a special report, right? Every night they they go on to television to do this to you, to unsettle your mind. They want you to be freaking out about something, so you tune in. And and Paul says, "It, it doesn't honor God for you to be this unsettled. The word translated alarmed here means to be constantly fretting, to be constantly worried or jumpy. Do you know anybody who's like that? Somebody who's anxious and jumpy and and worried? 
Paul wrote 2 Thessalonians 2 so that you would not have this sort of anxiety. And the way he does it in here is by clarifying what God is doing, what he is about in the world. We're going to get more specific in, in a minute here. But this passage, I think it reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. God has given gifts to people in the church and gifts to evangelize and pastor and teach. And then look at Ephesians 4 verse 14. It says, Then... Um, as, as they serve and, and there's growth, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. We won't be unsettled and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. It's not what we're supposed to be tossed to and fro like this. Instead, we're supposed to speak the truth in love and doing so we will grow to become in every respect the mature a body of him who is the head, that is Christ. There is supposed to be teaching that is going on in the church that is supposed to settle unsettled minds and calm, alarmed hearts. That's why when we meet together, we give ourselves over to reading and understanding God's Word. It brings stability. We are, we are the antidote to the, network, to the local news channel that's trying to unsettle you. God's Word does it. This is what God's Word does among God's people. Now here in 2 Thessalonians 2, the specific concern that's unsettling and alarming the people is about the timing of the day of the Lord. They're, they're unsettled because they think the day of the Lord has already come. Now we've come across this phrase, day of the Lord, before. We know what it means. The day of the Lord is a phrase that's used throughout the Bible, and it describes any specific period of judgment or blessing that God is visiting on the earth. Sometimes, sometimes it seems like God doesn't notice what's happening. You feel that way? God is, is sometimes absent. He, he doesn't notice the suffering that is happening in the world. But there's coming a day when he will very clearly uh, pour out his judgment and provide his blessing. It will clearly come from him. In the Old Testament, there's a number of periods of time like this, the days, there are days of the Lord. But in the New Testament, we turn and, and, and Paul and John and, and the gospel writers focus our attention on the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the end of the age, the period associated with the second coming and triumph of the Lord Jesus. Now in verses 1 and 2, there's two things he says about this. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord, two things, and are being gathered to Him. This is the central event, the coming of the Lord, the central event of the day of the Lord. But then he speaks about our gathering. It's a wonderful phrase. I want to pause there for just a minute. I don't want you to miss that. I think it's probably an echo of what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. So when Jesus comes back, we will be with him forever. We'll be gathered to him. This is the focus of our hope. We'll be with Jesus, all of us gathered together. Last night was the first game of the National League Championship Series. Maybe some of you watched it if you're baseball fans. Uh, it was played at Wrigley Field in Chicago. The Cubs have appeared in the National League Championship five times, and they have not ever won it. Uh, you know some of the statistics. The last time they won, uh, were in the World Series was 1945, and the last time they won was 1908. That's a long time ago. 
Teddy Roosevelt was president in 1908. Uh, What do you suppose this week the scramble was like in Chicago to get tickets to that game? Can you imagine how the Cubs fans, if you are a true Cubs fan, you want to gather with the other Cubs fans because this is the year they're supposed to win, right? I know they were there last year, but this is the year. This is their year. And, and you know how scramble there must have been in Chicago to get tickets to this game, how much they were selling for? Uh, they, you're a true Cubs fan if you want to gather together with other Cubs fans to see the triumph of your team. This is a, a longing here. There's a similar longing is supposed to mark God's people. We want to be together with Jesus. There has never been a gathering of the entire church of Jesus Christ except for maybe in the first couple chapters of the book of Acts. Been a long time since we have all been together, but that day is coming. We're going to be gathered together with Him. And the only other place that this word "gathering" appears in the New Testament is in Hebrews ten twenty-five, uh, verse twenty-four starts this way: "Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up gathering." There it is, right there. Meeting together, gathering as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but when we gather together on Sunday mornings, we meet to worship Jesus in anticipation of the day when all of God's people will meet together, will be with him. That's why we gather together. This is a gathering of the Lord's people who live around our church, and we gather together to celebrate the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The Bible calls us to do this. The Bible calls us together. Someday we are going to gather together with all followers of Jesus Christ around the Lord Jesus. And that day he will call us together with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. Our gathering to him. And and every Sunday we meet together is a foretaste or it's a, a sign of our anticipation of that day that is to come. Now, the Thessalonians here are concerned about the day of the Lord. And according to verse 2, Paul isn't sure where they heard about this. Where are they getting this spurious knowledge about the day of the Lord? He mentions three possibilities there, doesn't he? He says, um, you might be unsettled or alarmed by teaching that's coming from us, whether by prophecy, your translation might say spirit, a spirit-inspired prophecy, or by word of mouth, a sermon, maybe? Or by letter? By letter. Uh, the NIV, uh, your translation might say, a letter supposedly from us. The NIV puts it up above, uh, teaching allegedly from us. I, like, I, want, I want to think about this for just a minute because Paul is speculating that there may have been a letter that supposedly was from him that uh, bore all these marks of Second Thessalonians that started just the same way and was written to the church and it told them something that was not true about the day of the Lord. Now, this is, uh, New Testament scholars have a wonderful phrase for this. I usually don't use um, theology speak in church, but I love this word, so I'm going to say it. Paul here is speculating about something that New Testament scholars call pseudepigrapha. I love that word. It's wonderful. Pseudepigrapha. Pseudo, false, pseudo, false, graphe, writing, false, writing. And I mention this because occasionally we hear, oh, every couple of years in the news, we hear about some new, new te- supposedly New Testament era document that has been written that you're supposed to have confidence in. Have you ever heard of the Gospel of Judas? 
or the Gospel of Thomas, or uh, the Epistle of Barnabas, or the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Those documents really exist, and they're really old, but none of them are old enough to actually have come from those uh, be written by Judas or Thomas or Mary Magdalene. And they, they clearly conflict with the 27 books in the New Testament. But we hear about them. The next time you hear somebody trumpet the Gospel of Judas and how we need to read the Gospel of Thomas and, and how the Gospel of Mary Magdalene will revolutionize your understanding of the Scriptures, you remember to yourself, that's just pseudepigrapha. It's no big deal. Actually, Paul was aware of this. He's, there, there may be a letter that's circulating in my name, a false letter that's not actually from me. Don't listen to it. Now, what they have read, what they have heard about in this letter or this sermon is that the day of the Lord has already come, that they're already in the day of the Lord. They were not in the day of the Lord, but they thought they were. Do you know anyone who is unsettled or alarmed by this or like this? What happens, it's probably happened to you sometime, some Sunday afternoon, you go home, you take a nice nap, you sleep an hour longer than you intend, and you get up and you can't find any member of your family anywhere in the house. Car's there, but nobody is, and you think to yourself, they've been raptured, I've been left behind, what am I going to (laughs) do? Don't be easily unsettled or alarmed. Happens. (laughs) Now, Paul, in this passage, gives two signs of the coming of the day of the Lord that haven't happened yet, but they still will. We're going to talk about those two things, but before we do, I want to orient you for just a few minutes to some of the ways that the followers of Jesus Christ talk about the end times. Some of you have been wondering when I'm going to do this, when I'm going to talk about this. Um, I haven't yet, because my goal every week is to really focus on each specific text and what it says, the text speaks to us, all of us. Um, and and we, there are differences in our congregation over our understanding of the end times, of what's going to come. Um, we're not afraid to talk about our differences, but again, if the text doesn't mandate that we talk about them, my goal is to go through the text. The text speaks to all of us, regardless of the position we have. Yet, what I want to do for just a few minutes is I want to talk to you about some of the ways that God's people understand the Bible's teaching on the end times. This is an area in which the scriptures are not as clear as we would want them to be. If if it was, then all of God's people would agree because God's people take God's word seriously. Not everyone is right in their understanding of the Bible. There are some people who are wrong about this, and someday the Lord will show you. (laughs) Um, So... um, But these are all biblically defensible views. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. There's just, there's some interpretations that are better than others. I have a position, I will tell you what it is. Uh, I imagine over the course of this week, uh, these weeks, my uh, uh, walking through this passage, it will come out a little bit more. Um, Actually, this morning I want to show you one way from this passage that confuses me and my position. I would like Paul to have said something different than he did would make my theology fit better. You just change the New Testament. But. And I want to show you one way that your understanding might be a little bit challenged by this text too. We're not going to focus on this for the next few weeks as we go through Second Thessalonians, but I'm going to for the next seven minutes. So give me a few minutes to talk about this. Uh, there are five great events that the Bible describes that mark the end times. Five great events. All followers of Jesus, because these are clearly in the Bible, believe in all five of these events. 
They are, what we disagree about is the nature of these five events and the order of these five events. What are they and what order do they come in? So here are the, here are the five. There is the rapture, the second coming of Jesus, the millennium, eternity, just the eternal age, and the tribulation, all five of those things. Now, the key event here in this, as we think about these views, is the second coming, and the views all get their name from how they're related, how the second coming is related to the millennium. I'll explain that. Here's the first most common view within the church, all right? There is premillennialism, premillennialism. The second coming comes before the millennium. So premillennialism puts these things in this order. The tribulation first, we may be in the tribulation right now. Then the rapture, which is described in 1 Thessalonians 4. For premillennialists, Jesus is going to come down, call his people to himself, and then we're all going to come to earth for the second coming, which would then be third, then the millennium, and then eternity, the five events in that order. If this is describing you, then you're a premillennialist. Now, there's a branch of premillennialism, a subset of premillennialism called, oh, if I talk about pseudepigrapha, surely I can use this phrase, right? Pre-tribulational premillennialism. Oh, it's getting better. Um, it gets its name from the location of the rapture. So the pre-tribulational premillennialists put the rapture first, then the tribulation. Uh, the rapture, then while the church is in heaven, the tribulation here on earth. Then the second coming then the millennium, and then eternity. Um, then there is a view called post-millennialism. It's called post-millennialism because the second coming comes after the millennium. All right? So in this view, the tribulation comes first, and again, we may be in it, and then the millennium. Now, how does that work? Post-millennialists are the most optimistic people in the whole world. It's wonderful. They think that the church is going to be so successful in spreading the gospel, we're going to be so effective in, in, in converting the world that the world will be ushered into this time of great peace and harmony all under the authority of the gospel and the word of God and in honor of Jesus. That's wonderful. So optimistic. So uh, they believe uh, um, um, tribulation, then millennium, and then the world... Well, in order and peace is going to welcome Jesus back. Uh, well, Jesus will come down. He'll rapture his people and then second coming. So those two events together. And then eternity. That's post-millennialist. The final view is that I want to talk about is called amillennialism. Ah meaning no, but that's not really fair. Amillennialists believe in the millennium. They just don't think it's a distinct period of 1,000 years. So they believe that in this age that we're in, we have kind of a combination right now of tribulation and millennium, that the world is kind of like that right now. We're both experiencing tribulational truths and millennial truths all at the same time right now. And then they believe that the rapture will come, Jesus will call us up, and then we'll all return in the second coming, and then finally eternity. All five of these great events, but in a different order and a different meaning. You may favor one of these positions. I know members of our congregation that hold to at least three of them. Um, not three at the same time in one person. That's not what I meant. I meant individual members who hold to one of the three. I don't know any post-millennialists in our congregation. If you are a post-millennialist, that's wonderful. We need optimistic people like you. 
I, I'm so pre, pre, I don't even recycle. The world's going away. I, but post-millennialists love the world, and it's going to get great. I'm just kidding about that. I do recycle. Now, um, I think, my opinion, I, my understanding of the Bible is that I think that pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism is the most biblical. That's the one that I rest in. Now, how does the day of the Lord relate to all of these views? Pre-tribulational, pre-millennialists believe that the day of the Lord begins during the tribulation and it extends all the way through the tribulation, the second coming, the millennium, uh, and that's the day of the Lord. And most of these views would agree, but they would put the day of the Lord towards the end of all of these events. The day of the Lord always includes the second coming and may include the millennium and the tribulation as well. Now, the Thessalonians think they are in the day of the Lord that they somehow missed out on the second coming or they somehow missed out on the rapture. This is difficult. It's difficult to understand what they're believing. But, but they think that the suffering that they're experiencing, remember they're persecuted people, they think the suffering that they're enduring is tribulation-like and they're distressed that they're in the day of the Lord. They're distressed that they're experiencing this. Aha, uh-huh. now. They had expected to miss out on the suffering of the day of the Lord but here they are experiencing it. Why did they think they were going to miss out on the suffering? Because Paul had told them in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 that Jesus will rescue us from the wrath that is to come. But their suffering seems to indicate that they're in the middle of it and they're unsettled and alarmed about this. Again, what did they believe? They were very confused about the second coming and the day of the Lord. This is a strange understanding of the day of the Lord that they could be in it. We're not exactly sure what's happening you know, they were often afraid. In 1 Thessalonians 4, they were afraid that believers who had died would miss out on the, uh, uh, the second coming in the day of the Lord. And Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians 4 to calm that anxiety. Now they, they're all confused, and they all think we've missed out somehow on the second coming, or where maybe we're in the judgment portion of the day of the Lord. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses <clears throat> believe that Jesus returned in 1914 that the second coming happened in 1914. They believe that Jesus returned and his return was invisible and uh, secretive. Maybe the Thessalonians believe something like that, that Jesus came back invisibly and secretive and, the, and they, they didn't see it. So what happens in this passage is that Paul gives them two signs of the day of the Lord. They should know these signs and not seeing them, they should cease from their anxieties. So before Jesus comes back, here's what's going to happen. Two things. Now, before I mention that, I I, I would say it would be very convenient for me, for my understanding, my pre-tribulational, premillennialism, if Paul would have said at this point in time, of course it's not the day of the Lord. You're still on earth. And Jesus is going to rapture you before the day of the Lord. That would be very convenient for my view. I would really like that in this text. That's not here, though. Nor does he say, I don't know why he doesn't say, it's not the day of the Lord. Of course it's not the day of the Lord because Jesus hasn't come yet. You'll see him. Every eye is going to see him. He didn't say that either. Hmm. What does he do point to? Two other signs. Two signs. The first one is in verse 3 and it's rebellion. Rebellion. The text says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs, till the rebellion occurs. 
In the Bible, the word rebellion here is it's the word from which we get our English word apostasy. Uh, it's a decisive turning away, a decisive spiritual rebellion. Now, the Bible tells us that God, as our maker and creator, rules over all, that, that um, he is the sovereign of the universe. It's not evident that he is. We don't see everything subject to him, but he does rule. And Paul here is talking about a specific rebellion that is going to come called the rebellion. But you know, the Bible actually tells us that all of us human beings are naturally in a state of rebellion against him. We're all alienated from God, disobedient to him, in rebellion against his rule. You ever like to play hide and seek? I'm fairly certain that everybody in this room at some point in your life has played hide and seek. My most recent experience was uh, we would play hide-and-seek with our kids in the house. Um, when they're two, they're just not really very good at this game. You can hide behind curtains. Um, you can hide around corners. You can hide under blankets. They can't find you anywhere. Uh, when I was a teenager, there was a week during one summer, I remember we spent uh, every night of that week after dark playing hide-and-seek at my friend Kristen's house. Kristen had a big old house in town and a huge circular driveway. And it was big enough that the rules for the game were you had to hide somewhere within the driveway to play. And we'd wait until it was dark and we'd get our dark clothes and we'd go and play hide and seek. Um, There's a a version of hide and seek that I never liked to play. We haven't played it in my house a long time. In a long time, it's the version of hide and seek when my children go and hide because they've done something wrong and they're hiding. Uh, not, not at all my favorite version of hide-and-seek. You call them, come, come. They don't do it. They don't do it. So you have to start looking. Sometimes they're hiding because they've <coughs> broken something in the house or they've taken something they shouldn't have, some violation of, of a rule you call, and they don't, they don't come. It's very aggravating. Yet it's a scene that's right at the beginning of the Bible. Actually, that happens just in the first few chapters of the Bible. Adam and Eve are hiding from God. Why are they hiding from God? Because of their shame. There is the shame in them of their rebellion. Your rebellion against God is evident in the fact that you experience shame. Shame is not something that God created. It is a consequence of our rebellion against him. And in one sense, the story of the Bible is, isn't it? It's played out in the first few chapters of the Bible. God is the one who comes searching for his hiding, rebellious creatures, and he rescues us from our own rebellion. It's incredibly good news. He rescues us by his own son, who comes and lives the perfect life we could not have lived and died the death for us that we deserved on the cross. So that we, by turning, in him, turning to him and trusting in him, will have forgiveness and life. This is what it means. This is a central message in our congregation. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, someone who has seen and recognized and trusted that Jesus is our great rescuer, we who were hiding. Now, here in the text, Paul is not talking about that sort of rebellion. He's talking about the rebellion that will come in that day. It will be dramatic. It will be clear. It will be a defection, a shameless sort of rebellion against God. There's going to be terrible times. Paul writes about this. Now, 
I didn't print out, I didn't have room, but flip over with me, if you would, to 2 Timothy. It's just a couple pages to the right. If you're in 2 Thessalonians 2, you can just turn a couple pages to the right, and you'll find 2 Timothy. And I want to read what Paul says about the end times and this, this rebellion um, that's going to be marked, marking those last days. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, Mark this... There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with such people." This is a bad situation that is described here. Look down at chapter 4, verse 3. It says, of 2 Timothy, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head, well, he warns Timothy, you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. There is going to be this season of rebellion against God. It's hard to imagine how the human condition could get any worse, but it's going to happen. Now, there's a second sign here that he gives, not just the rebellion, but the second sign that he mentions is the revelation of the man of lawlessness. There's the rebellion and then the revelation of the man of lawlessness. Verse 3 Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, um, there is a relationship probably between this rebellion and this revelation, this man of lawlessness. Probably he is the chief leader and architect of this rebellion. And the Bible describes him in three ways. It calls him the man of lawlessness, which is a statement about his character. He will be without regard for God's law and obstinately opposed to God's law without any sort of restraint. That's his character. He's the man of lawlessness. Now, then it says he is the man doomed to destruction. Your translation might say the son of perdition. Um, That's his destiny. What's going to happen to him? He's going to be destroyed. There's only one other person in the Bible called the son of perdition. His name is Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord. He's the the man doomed to destruction. So we have his character, his destiny. And last, we talk about his, his works, what he does. It says he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. In fact, um, he's going to claim the worship of the world. He's going to want it for himself. He's going to demand it. In fact, the text tells us that he is going to set himself up in God's temple and proclaim himself to be God. Uh, The most clear reference to this, I think, is the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. It was still standing when Paul wrote this Readers today, you and I, the, the temple's not there in Jerusalem right now. Some people read this text and they wonder. They say, well, how is this going to happen? How is this man of lawlessness going to set himself up in the temple? It doesn't exist. Well, I happen to believe it's going to be rebuilt. That's one of the 
like ingredients in pre-tribulational premillennialism. I believe the temple's going to be rebuilt. If you don't think that's going to happen, you somehow have to explain how the man of lawlessness is going to be in God's temple. Let me tell you how you might be able to do that. You might be able to interpret this passage metaphorically or symbolically as if the man of lawlessness is just exalting himself like God. You could do that. The problem with doing that, though, is that this isn't a symbolic or metaphorical passage. Paul's speaking very literally. This is not John. This is not Revelation. Hmm. Well, you can think about that. Some of Paul's readers might recognize in this passage something that had just happened about 10 years ago. In AD 40, the emperor, Gaius Caesar, Caligula, had ordered that his statue should be erected in the temple in Jerusalem. Oh, the Roman governor used to be Pilate. It wasn't Pilate anymore. But the Roman governor in AD 40 in Judea knew that that would be a disaster. Oh, my goodness. If you put a, te- a statue in the temple, there would be riots, riots everywhere in Jerusalem and Judea. The Jews would just revolt against this. So he delayed and delayed and delayed and, and didn't do it. And um, in AD 41, fortunately for the Roman governor, unfortunately for Caligula, he, Caligula was assassinated. So the plans were dropped. would have been a disaster. But everybody knew about this. Paul knew about it. The Thessalonians knew about it. They, they would have recognized here. Paul's talking about something that actually somebody tried to do. A few minutes ago, I mentioned that I called this man the Antichrist. It's, it's a word that other books of the New Testament use to describe this, this man. It fits here because <coughs> he goes into the temple and he demands... He goes into the temple, the, only, the place where only Jesus belongs to go, deserves to go, and he demands worship from the whole world, which is only what Jesus uh, is worthy of. Also, it's interesting, the text says that he will be revealed. He's revealed. That's the same word that, that Paul used to describe the coming of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 7. He'll be revealed. He's hidden and will be revealed. It's very possible. It's possible that this person this man described in second thessalonians 2 is alive now and and his true nature and character will be revealed sometime Um, we're going to talk about this man more next week and more of what the bible describes how the bible describes him but he sounds a lot like a character that's described for us in the book of daniel when daniel's talking about the end times look at daniel 9 27 he Oh, there's parts in here we're not going to talk about right now. We could, but we won't. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. He's going to desecrate the temple. Or look at Daniel 11:36 36 and 37. The king, this man, will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. He will demand to be worshipped. I think that this man of lawlessness that Paul is describing here actually accords with one of the end-time beasts that are described in the book of Revelation. Listen to this, Revelation 13. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. 
It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have been not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. There is coming a day, a defiant one, who will demand to be worshipped. He will demand to take the place of God in the minds and hearts of every single person who lives on the earth. He's coming. The fact that he has not come yet is a sign that we are not yet in the day of the Lord. That should give you pause. It should calm some of your anxieties if you're afraid of what is to come. But even more as we read this text, I want to point out to you that we worship the God before whom all of this has been set. He's the author of these things. He's the author of our destiny, of our history. He doesn't forget any details. He leaves no injustices unaddressed. He drops no plans. He's completely and totally in control. In a couple weeks, oh, a couple weeks, a month or so, we will have our Turkey Bowl, our annual flag football tournament on Thanksgiving morning. We hope to have about 100 people here playing football Thanksgiving morning. And uh, because I have this vein in me, I started a long time ago, it's Thanksgiving Day, you should play football with your family. We don't enforce that quite as much, but um, uh, the Divinis, we're always on a team together we play. And my brother-in-law, Paul, is usually the quarterback. Um, he ha- he's a coach, it comes to him naturally. Actually, he's very good at trying to make sure the ball gets thrown to everybody and that the game is, is played well. Occasionally, Paul will have plans, just occasionally, <laughs> So uh, when the ball's on the line of scrimmage, come, come, and come everybody, and we'll huddle together, and Paul will put his hand out like every good coach does, and, and he'll, he'll draw out plans. You run out and go like this, and you run out and go like this, and he'll give an assignment to everybody. He's got a play in mind. He ends by looking at me and saying, now, Joel, you go out there and try not to get hurt. Okay, that's <laughs> my role, which I appreciate because he and I agree about that. That's a good goal, okay? Just try not to get, don't get anybody's way, and don't get hurt. That's Good plan. Uh, Paul's plans work about 20% of the time, but he calls the plays. We have yet to have an occasion when the line of scrimmage, the ball's on the line of scrimmage and it's the other team's ball when it's their possession. We have yet to have a time when Paul has said, okay, come here, come here, everybody. I want to tell you exactly what the other team is going to do. We have yet to have as good a coach as he is, as good a quarterback as he is, he has yet to lay out the other team's plans for us. And yet here they are in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 the other team's plans, all laid out very clearly. Don't be unsettled or alarmed. This is the God that we worship, the one who has set these out before us. He is going to emerge victorious. This is the moment of time when human rebellion reaches its peak and nothing's going to take God by surprise. He's going to win. That's ultimately what settles minds and hearts. Richard Kyle's a historian. He teaches at Tabor College in the the Midwest. He wrote a book not too long ago. It's called The Last Days Are Here Again, A History of the Second Coming. He was interviewed a few years ago by Christian History Magazine. He said something that I want us to keep in mind these weeks as we're talking about this issue. He said, Through much of history, people have been looking more for the Antichrist than they have for Christ. Interesting. 
Throughout history, people have been looking more for the Antichrist. They've been trying to find him everywhere. The White House, the Vatican, New York City, Europe, somewhere, they've been trying to find him. Throughout much of history, people have been looking more for the Antichrist than for Christ. Let's not make that mistake. This man of lawlessness, he's going to be powerful, he's going to be evil, but we are looking for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we're not unsettled and we're not alarmed. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we do thank you for your word. Uh, There are questions that we have about it and things we struggle to put together, but the things that we understand speak to us poignantly and powerfully. Lord, I do pray for these dear men and women here in this auditorium and down in the fellowship hall. Lord, I'm, I'm sure that as we talk about these things, there are those who are unsettled and alarmed by them. Lord, I I pray that your word and the certainty of it would bring uh, their anxiousness to a close, that it would calm their fears and their worries. Lord, would you guard us in the next few weeks as we uh, think about this man who is to come, that it would be true of us that we're looking more for Christ than the Antichrist, And I pray that you would use your word to, regardless of our understanding of the end times, that you would use our word to shape and transform um, all of us, that we might be more like Jesus. Everyone, John says, who has the hope of seeing him purifies themselves even as he is pure, Jesus is. So use your word to purify us, we pray, in anticipation of that great day. We pray with John, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And together we say these things in his name, saying, Amen.